Now, throughout chapter 4, most of you, if you have any type of modern text, the Bible will see that the main heading that's going on here is unity. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been discussing the fact that Paul is drawing us to consider unity very seriously. Unity in the mind of Christ and His church are not to be considered an extracurricular activity. It'd be nice if you did it. It's supposed to be an essential aspect of what we're about. That is maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is not just something for us to consider and ponder. It is something for us to put into action and to be considering continuously. Are we seeking? Is our, are our actions producing unity? Is that what we're about? So we see that that's what Paul is talking about. And we'll find that as we go through the rest of this chapter, he's going to return to that critical theme. But right now, he begins to say, unity has some other aspects to it. What Paul now begins to look at and say is, is that while we all share one body, the body of Christ, we have been gifted differently by Christ's grace given to us. So what we see then is not a unity of uniformity, but rather a unity of diversity of giftedness. We know that throughout the Scriptures and the New Testament, that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, that various gifts were given. And even though in our modern time, the word charismata or charismatic has been taken over to mean certain things, I want to recapture that word for us because it's the biblical word for all gifts which come from God. They are gracious gifts. Karas, grace. Gifts of grace is what the, the gifts are. And so we want to hold on to that word and see that word as the word that God has given to the church. He has given gifts, and they are many and diverse. And what we want to understand is, is that while we share one confession, we're indwelt by one Spirit, we proclaim one Lord who has saved us, and we have one Father who is over us all and who loves us all and has demonstrated that love to us in sending His Son and in pouring out His Spirit. Nevertheless, the reality is, is that here in this passage, Paul is drawing us to consider the fact that Christ has come and given a gift to the church, a particular gift. And that we need to see the reality of that gift and begin to look at it and consider it. Peter makes the point of this full expression of us with our diversity of gifts growing up into the fullness of Christ just like Paul does in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10-11. through 11. He says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. And remember, if you will, back to chapter 3 where Paul himself has talked about that we are the manifold expression of God's wisdom, this language of this diversity of seeing God's people, not only a display of the manifold wisdom of God, but also a display of the manifold grace of God seen in gifts. Peter goes on to say, 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that an see God's glory extended through the person and work through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now it's interesting because our purpose statement, if you will, our vision statement for Desert Springs is that Desert Springs exists to extend the glory of God by savoring the work and worth of Christ. Do you see what Peter says? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that God receives glory. And as we focus on Christ, we too are proclaiming and seeing God lifted up. This is the focal point of our lives to see God's glory extended through the person and work of Jesus Christ proclaimed. I want us to look at three points this morning, and I want us to consider this as we look at who the gift giver is. The first thing I want us to notice Paul says to us about the gift giver is this. He is a triumphing king. How do we see this? Well, look at what he says in verse 8. He says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul basically says, this measure of Christ's gift, this grace that was poured out according to the measure of Christ's gift, is seen and reflected in Psalm 68, 18. And if you would just begin to consider the fact that in ancient times, as Paul reflects back on this, Warrior kings would go out to battle. And what would happen is they would go out, and if they succeeded in conquering a particular nation or a particular city or however these things worked themselves out at various times in history, they would basically lead back a host of captives and they would receive tribute from those captive people's king and nobles, and they would bring all that back to their city amid great pomp and jubilation. And having received those gifts, what they then would do is they would hand those gifts over to be distributed or given, if you will, to the people of their nation or land or city. And so we see this idea of this conquering king going out to defeat their enemies, capturing all these gifts and then drawing them back to his people and distributing them among them. And so this is the idea that Paul has brought about here that the that the image of Psalm 68 is displaying God as a triumphing warrior king. The language is changed here and I kind of want to begin to work at this because actually in Psalm 68 it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and received gifts from men. And that's part of the reason why I was trying to give you that imagery of what generally tended to happen and the idea that was given there because some have made a very big point of saying, well, Paul changed this passage. It says in the Old Testament, received gifts from men. And in the New Testament, it says he gave gifts to men. But the idea here is not so convoluted as it might seem and not contradictory. As I said, the idea that God would take gifts or take the surrounding nation's wealth and pour it back out onto his people is not unheard of in the Old Testament. And we see that that is the imagery that's being displayed there in Psalm 68 as you read it. But another way of seeing this passage is that God as a conquering warrior receives from among men gifts which he then gives back to them 
we look at Numbers 18.6, and if you turn back there, I figured since we're going to Numbers, some of you have never even really greased that part of your Bible with your fingers. So let's go back there to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And if you turn back there to Numbers 18, verse 6, this is actually one of the passages that is being reflected on in Psalm 68. So it does help us understand in some ways what's happening here. And look at what we're told here happens. Numbers 18, verse 6. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. Now notice what's happening there. God has basically taken the Levites, a particular group of people, and said, these people I require of you because I require of the firstborn of all Israel. But instead of taking all your firstborns, I'll take the tribe of Levi. I'll take the Levites to myself in their place. But why have I taken them to myself? To give them back to you. They're a gift to you. You've given me. Notice that Scripture has this type of theme running throughout it. Why do we give back to God of our money? Well, who do you think gave it to you? God did. You're just giving Him back what He's given to you. And so in the same way, we see that when we give to God, what does He turn around and do? He gives it back to us because He is good and generous. And so that's one of the places we see this. As you're turning back over to Ephesians, if you would stop by Isaiah 66, we'll look at what Isaiah says in relation to these ideas as well. And will help give us some context as we look forward into the coming of Christ. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 19 through 21. And it says this, And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Now the ultimate thing that's being promised here is the reality that God would take from even among the nations as He sent out His witnesses from Israel... Think about what happens after Pentecost from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. You will begin to bring in all these people. And from among all of you, I will pick out for myself priests and Levites to do what? To serve the body. To serve the church. Ultimately, to be people who will bring the reality of the kingdom of God. And isn't that exactly the focus that Paul has here in Ephesians 4? That's what he's been leading us up to. He is building 
a superstructure. The people of God are being built into a holy temple. And He has set aside people to serve within that capacity to build up all the members of that temple so that they might serve the true and living God. The focus here then is that Christ is triumphed in the midst of His enemies through His life, death, and resurrection and ascension. He's triumphed. And so what has He done? He's bringing within His train, if you will, gifts which He is setting out and displaying and using for the benefit of His people. Through His grace, He has distributed them to human beings. Pentecost then was a great visible declaration that Christ had triumphed and the benefits including gifts were signs of that reality. In other words, what you need to see out of this passage is is that at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the reality of Christ was being seen, the reality that the kingdom was being inaugurated, one of those signs was that people were given gifts. One of those signs was the fact that we will see in just a few minutes was the fact that God ordained certain men to fulfill His purposes to build up and lay a foundation for the church that would extend until Christ comes back. Christ did this. Christ has done this for His people. The second thing that I want us to look at is the descending Savior. Look at where Paul goes now. Paul says, in saying He ascended... What does it mean? But that He had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. In other words, we might ask ourselves this question, how did Christ receive these gifts? That's the question that seems to be what Paul is asking here. Paul now draws us to consider that the ascending triumph also has a corresponding descent implied within it. Even though it says He ascended, Paul says there's a, logical, there's a logical thing we need to consider. If he ascended, he had to come from some place, which means he had to have descended down to from which he could ascend back up. The idea then here is that some have seen this applying to the time between Christ's death and resurrection. Thus, they have seen this as Christ having descended into Hades. That's how they read the lower parts of the earth. And indeed, that's how First Peter, when we looked at that, for those of you that were here last year, when we looked at First Peter, we looked at that passage where it talks about Christ going down and preaching to the saints. And we talked about the fact that that is actually not Christ descending into Hades at all. That actually that Christ was preaching throughout the Scriptures that the text does not really allow for that idea, although there have been many within the church's history that have held to that. that that's the idea that's here. Some others have held um, this, and I believe this is correct. Here in Ephesians, as well as other parts of the Bible, the contrast between the highest heaven and the lowest part of the created order seem to be what's in view here. That the idea is that if Christ has ascended, as earlier in Ephesians we've been told, above all things, to the highest heights of heaven, above angels and archangels, above everything, He has been seated at the right hand of God and has been set over the church. That if that idea of loftiness is being displayed, that then when we talk about descending, the idea of coming for God in physical form to the planet Earth, a speck of a speck of a speck in the universe, we see that that's the lower 
part of the earth. The idea is this mirrorism, if you will, the contrast of the highest heaven to the lowest earth. Jesus came born of a woman to live and to suffer and to die in humiliation. And so what we see Paul basically bringing as we look at the descending Savior is I believe this idea that Christ comes in human flesh. It is the notion of the incarnation. Now some have also seen recently, modern scholarship has said, no, what's really going on here is this is Christ descending through the Spirit at Pentecost. The problem we run into if we take that interpretation here is it seems to from Paul's logic, say it's a descent that happened prior to his ascension. That's the way the language reads. Not to mention the fact that it seems to be saying that Christ ascended in his person. Well, Christ in his person didn't descend through the Spirit. It was the Spirit whom Christ's Spirit is poured out into us. But they are different, and they do not seem to indicate the same thing. The focus here, I believe rightly, is the incarnation. Of Jesus. And I want to say this, and I want you to think about this. We focus a lot, and we will look when we look at this table on the on Christ's death. But I want us to take a moment and think about this. There could be no life, there could be no death, unless the sovereign creator of the universe in this his second person, the Son had been willing to come and unite himself to be one of us. The reason why we take time to think about the incarnation is because without the incarnation, all the rest of it goes away. Without Christ saying, I will become a man, I will unite myself forever hereafter to creatures do you begin to fathom the depths of an infinite, sovereign, all-powerful being saying, I will go and I will become one of them. I will walk among them. I will live among Think about the realities of what that looks like. I will scrape my knee. I will go to the bathroom. I will go through the process of thinking about stuff. The one who knows everything the one who needs no one would submit himself to the womb of a woman and to the care of her. Consider that for just a moment, what Paul is saying. That the God of heaven descended to become the savior of human beings. And what he ultimately did was to unite himself to us as human beings forever. The incarnation is an incredible reality and one that we should treasure as God's people. The third point and the final point that I want us to look at this morning then is the distributing Christ. Notice what he then says in verse, at the end of verse 10, he says, far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And then in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Now I know that verse is going to jump right into chapter or into verse 12. And we're going to look at all that in the next weeks. But I really want us to focus here because I want us to see what is Christ giving 
to the church specifically. What is it? And what Christ says He gives to the church is the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. We see that Paul has in mind very specific gifts that Christ has given the church. Well, we should never divide the Trinity and their unified work of bringing about the unity of the people of God and equipping them with gifts. Here in this passage, it is not said that the Holy Spirit poured out these gifts. And in other passages of the New Testament, it tells us that God has given gifts. God the Father has given gifts. Here in this passage, uniquely, it tells us that Christ, the second person of the Godhead, gave these specific gifts to the church as a demonstration of His grace. Now I want us to get hold of that. These four or five, depending on how you want to slice it up, and we'll look at that in just a minute, offices, ministerial roles, were given by Christ as a measure of His grace to His church. I want us to begin to ponder that. Begin to consider if we really love Christ, if we're really about Christ, how are we thinking about His gifts that He gives to the church? Look at what He says then here. As He is the gift giver. So what are these gifts? Apostles. Now, the word apostle means to be the sent one. And so it could be that what Paul has in mind here is speaking of all Christians, because we're told in the New Testament that all of us are sent ones of Christ. We're all sent. So it could be possibly that he's talking about that, but I don't believe so. I don't believe he's talking or speaking about Christ because we are told throughout the Gospel of John and specifically in the book of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, that Christ was an apostle, a sent one of God. But I don't, obviously, if Christ is Giving this gift, we know He's given Himself, but it's obviously not Him as the Apostle. I believe Paul is not speaking either about specific messengers sent from the churches because the churches would send apostles, the sent ones, sometimes that's used in the New Testament, to just mean this group of people or this person was sent from this church to this other place. But I believe in this passage here, as Paul looks at this, that foundation which he has already spoken of, built upon... The apostles and prophets is none other than those select men that Christ Himself chose, the twelve. And then a few select others, most likely James, the brother of Jesus, the apostle Paul, potentially Barnabas, and maybe a few select others. But a very select group of people for a very select calling. And that calling was narrowly defined by the establishment, by the laying the foundation for the church, the writing of holy scriptures. And when all of that was fulfilled, the apostles office was vacated. There are no modern day apostles in the context of what Paul is speaking about here. Now, clearly, we believe that God has sent ones he sends to us. We believe we're all sent out to be the sent ones of God. But that specific office, that specific place in time in history, that office of apostle was only for a brief period of time. And it was for the laying of the foundation of God's Word to ensure that the truth of Scripture was laid out and the Gospel was secured for the following generations. Now the next thing he talks about is the prophets. Now many people have read this passage and said, ah, He's talking about the Old Testament prophets, but just by the sheer fact of word order alone, we could start to say, hmm, 
Why doesn't he have the prophets preceding the apostles if he's really talking about the Old Testament prophets? It seems clear that even from his word order that what Paul has in mind, the foundation that was laid after Christ's resurrection and ascension was apostles and prophets, people who were speaking prophetically at that time. So it is that we see that what's really going on here is that what was happening during the time after Pentecost as the church was being established and the Bible had not yet been fully written, there were people who would stand up in the midst and say, thus saith the Lord. And it was just as if the scripture of the Old Testament was being proclaimed to the people. And so these two offices are linked together, apostles and prophets, because both of them are offices, are gifts, which have ceased. They are no longer necessary and therefore they are no longer around because the word of God we have in full. Now, again, does that mean there's no sense of prophecy within the church today? Well, of course there is, because the word that they spoke right here, we still have. And as we take this text and as Paul's already told us back over in chapter one, Verse 17, when he said that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you a spirit, capital S, of wisdom and of revelation, i.e. illumination and the knowledge of Him. Every time we have the Holy Spirit illuminating this text to our personal lives and to those whom God has given to us as ministers and as teachers, we hear God saying, thus saith the Lord. So the idea of Prophetic ministry has not gone away with the ceasing of the office of prophet. It is rather that we should not be looking to hear some oracle from heaven from a particular individual apart from God's holy word. We have his oracles. They are the Bible. This third gift really creates the most distress, it seemed to me, among the commentators Some see this as a special class of men who were called to serve with the apostles, and therefore they believe again that the office of evangelist is ceased and no longer exists. Why? Because there's only one place in the whole New Testament we are told that somebody was an evangelist. And it was Philip who also fulfilled the role in in a diaconal way. And so it has been surmised that potentially the seven that were set apart by the apostles Those were actually the evangelists. They actually served in deeds of mercy so that their whole focus was not necessarily gospel proclamation, but the evangelists were actually serving the apostles in their their ministry so that the apostles could focus themselves more fully on the Word of God. So the evangelists certainly could speak the Word of God. Philip climbed up into the, the carriage with the Ethiopian eunuch and explained to him the Scriptures and baptized this man. So he certainly was underneath the authority of the church of the apostles and the prophets, but he seems to be set apart and distinct. So they are seen as a specific office. Others, though, see this as a special gifting of people to proclaim the gospel with extra special effectiveness. That there are those throughout the history of the church that just seem to, no matter what they do, people just come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so they think that that is the special gifting of evangelists. I neither want to abuse you of either one of those views. I think that it's not something we should be too dogmatic about because the scriptures just flat out don't get dogmatic with us on it. But it is interesting about that office that it does seem that when we do see that term, 
evangelist, the only two people that it's used of is Philip. And then Timothy in 1 Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist. Outside of that, we don't see that word, that particular title used. Evangelism, sure, but not that title. However, I don't know about you, but I know people. I've had friends of mine. I wish I was more gifted in this way that literally I just sat down and had a conversation with people and they just boom. Yeah, I want to I want to know Jesus. I'm going to tell you somebody that if there's anybody in this city that I personally know gifted with this, it's Mark Ressler. Can't the foothills. That guy, he just looks at people and people come to know Jesus. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, the guy would show up with a Four spiritual laws, not exactly my favorite form of evangelism. I have some issues with those actually being the four spiritual laws. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that. But nevertheless, principles that he would do, he'd hand them that booklet at the In-N-Out Burger, hand him the booklet with the person standing there at the cash register and say, what are you going to be back again? They'd tell him. He'd pull back around next week whenever they were back at work and go, did you read that little booklet? Yes. Did you pray to receive Jesus? Yes. Here's some more material. I'll be back next week at the same time, same place. How many of you do, how many of you have ever had this done? Some of us spend years and years and years talking to people, just saying, Lord, just let this one person that I've basically spent half my life talking to convert. And yet other people will seem to just have this, just inertia around them of just they, they, they show up and people come to know Jesus. Here's my point. We ought to rejoice that there's those people. Whether or not that's really the office of evangelist, I'm not going to dispute or debate. I'm just going to say that they certainly are gifted and we ought to rejoice and rub elbows with them frequently so that maybe some of that will rub off on us. At least the zeal to see people converted, which they all seem to possess and may give us some insight into their giftedness. But also... It is the fact that we want to see that whatever the case is, the bottom line is that these members of this office were people who loved the gospel and wanted to see it furthered, loved the church and wanted to see it built up. The last thing that Paul speaks of here then is the pastors and teachers. Now here are these last two words. We see a a place where people have come to some different conclusions. Some see this as a specific ministry with two functions, namely that there are pastors who are teachers. They basically have a shepherding aspect of their office and they have a teaching aspect of their office. And I don't necessarily have a real problem with that, although I do agree with many who suggest that what really is happening here is that this is a pastors who are part of the larger teaching class. In other words, it might be said like this. All pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are necessarily pastors. And we know that there is the gift of teaching within the church and that people have it besides pastors. Other people have teaching gifts, but they're not necessarily called specifically to pastoral ministry. They're not called to the ordained office of being a pastor. Well, where does this bring us to? Well, in the end, in conclusion, what we need to see then is that each of these gifts focuses on a ministry of God's precious life-giving Word. Every single one of these ministries or these offices, if you will, focus on God's Word, the proclamation of the Gospel. That is their function. That is the, a primary aspect of what they were called for. It focuses us specifically on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the outworking of the realities of His life, death, resurrection, ascension, and present reign. 
These gifts, as we will see in the following verses, are not given to build up the self-esteem of the recipient. You don't walk around going, hey, look at this giftedness I've gotten. That's not the point. The point is to be following Christ, who did what? Who laid Himself down for the sheep. See, part of the way we begin to value these offices is we begin to realize what did the apostles for the most part do? They died. What did many of the prophets do? They died. What did Philip the evangelist do? He died for the faith. Now, I've once had a pastor say to me that sometimes it's easier to die for the faith than it is to live for it. And so while many of us might say, you know, boy, let, let, the, let the whoever take over America. I'm ready to die for the faith. Some of the question may be, that's wonderful. Demonstrate that by being willing to live for the faith. To suffer for the faith. To take it on the chin so that the church might grow in unity. This is what I want us then to consider as we conclude. If Christ has taken time, effort, and energy of His life, death, resurrection, and ascension to give these gifts, how should we think about them? How should we consider them? There is a sense in which you can say, well, Dennis, you're a pastor, so naturally this makes a great place for you to land. It's not so much about me. How do we value all these different offices throughout history? Do we have a love for those who have gone before us, who have laid down their lives so that we stand here today? There is a long train of pastors and teachers that have gone before us that enable there to be true churches to this very day. Just several weeks ago, we remembered and celebrated the Reformation and those who came before it. Wycliffe, Huss, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin. These people gave their lives so that we consider even this morning and hear God's Word. But not only that, should we not consider this, that when we despise both those who come before us and have given us a sure salvation, or we despise those we presently have, wherever they are, aren't we in some ways suggesting to Christ, your gifts aren't sufficient and you failed us? Aren't we saying that? Christ, what were you doing and what were you thinking with that person who you gave to the church? Think about that. Ponder that. Consider how much you value pastors and teachers. Do you see them as gifts or do you look at them as something that's there to do your bidding? And call upon God to give us increase in our midst as we love and cherish all the gifts that Christ by His Spirit and He Himself and His Father give to us. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.